Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. So today is going to be Sea of Galilee Part 7. Even though the topic today is not really Sea of Galilee, it's just going to be included in this series that we're doing. So last week, we took a look at the Jordan River and how, how important that Jordan River is to the biblical story. Even though it's not a very big river, it carries a lot of weight when it comes to how we tell the story and the spiritual metaphors that go along with it. And then today, we're going to finish because I left us last week with a question about the crossing of the Jordan River. So today, we're going to go and talk about this crossing event, meaning the Israelites come into Israel to the promised land, and that's where we get that spiritual metaphor, crossing over to the promised land. So they come to the promised land, and they have to cross the Jordan River. And we'll see there's some strange things about it that lead you to believe, wait a minute, there's more to the story. There's more going on about why God led them in this direction. So God willing, we will answer that question today. Why did God have them cross the Jordan? At least in part, we'll shed some light on it. This is the, a picture of the Jordan River close to the Dead Sea. So in the, deep in the Rift Valley, this is the traditional site of Jesus' baptism. And you can see they have platforms on both sides. So we're on the Israeli side. Across the river is Jordan. The platform on the other side is the Jordanian side. As I mentioned last week, by the time all of the agricultural runoff is coming downstream, this is probably the last place you want to be baptized is in that water. Uh, most people try to do it up north where the water is a little cleaner. But anyways, the water is quite high at that time. This was taken in January, so the rivers were flowing because of the winter rains. And we will come back to this location, God willing, soon enough. But let me do a quick review of a map to help orient your mind of where we're going to be. So on the left side of your screen, you have the Mediterranean Sea. That's to the west of Israel. Jerusalem sits in the mountains, 2,300 feet above sea level. So it's in the mountains, just on the north side of the Dead Sea. We mentioned last week that there are two seas in the land of Israel. And those two seas, you have the Sea of Galilee to the north, and then the Dead Sea to the south. And those two seas end up, you can then paint a picture about life. You use those two seas as the metaphor for the people in the world. One is alive, one is dead. And then... We mentioned last week that the very northern part of Israel, you have this mountain, very tall mountain called Mount Hermon, snow-covered mountain, and that's where you get the headwaters of the Jordan River. So the waters flow south from about 30 miles from Mount Hermon. They enter the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 12 miles from top to bottom. Then they exit the Sea of Galilee. They travel through that Rift Valley and down to the Dead Sea. So that's the, that's the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan River serves 
almost one of the interesting things about the Jordan River is it's not a river to be worshipped like the Nile. They don't worship it like the Nile. The Nile was like a god that created life. The Jordan River isn't seen that way. The Jordan River is a boundary. So it's a physical boundary for entering the, the promised land. It's also a spiritual boundary. So when we talk today about crossing the Jordan as a metaphor of going to heaven, the spiritual metaphor, we're going to see today that there's a, an idea of a, that the river is a transitional boundary to something, and that's represented by water. All right, so let's uh, go. So crossing the Jordan River, that's our topic today. Now, this is the question that I left off last week. Let me see. All right, so we ended last week with a question. And the question was, Joshua leads the Israelites to the Jordan River. It's both a concrete boundary and a spiritual or a transformation, transformational boundary. So somewhere near this site, the Israelites show up after their 40 years in the desert to go into the promised land. So the question goes like something like this. Here's Jericho, and God brings them to the east side of the Dead Sea, follow this arrow north. So they, God brings the Israelites on the east side until they camp right across from Jericho on the east side of the Jordan River. And then they have to go across, and we noted last week, it's at flood stage. So he brings them there right at Passover. Today is Passover. The event we'll be talking about happens at Passover. As soon as they cross, they celebrate Passover. So it's a new beginning. It's the beginning of a new year or a new creation. So the question we said was, well, why did he bring them this way? Why would God lead them around to have to cross a river that's at flood stage? Because what God could have very easily done is taken them up this side. There's a ridge line and a prominent route that goes from the south to the north or north to south. Today, scholars call it the patriarchal ridge route. It's the route that along the ridge line that all the patriarchs go back and forth on. So God could have easily taken them up that side. We can all come up with things in our mind like, oh, it's probably because of this or maybe this, but it's just that we want to ask that question. Why not take them an easier route where you don't have to cross a river? Because as I mentioned, Joshua 3.15 says, now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest, and it's the barley harvest for Passover. So let me show you. I want to go just to make sure you understand what I mean by the, this alternate route, the, the more prominent route. I want to take you to a map that's going to look right down here at the area south of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, where the Israelites could have gone a different way. So this map right here, you have Jerusalem sits where that red star is in the mountains, right on that ridge line. And then there's a prominent route that runs from, let's say, this city right here, Beersheba. So Beersheba is, it means the well of seven. Abraham is associated with this city. He makes a treaty at that city. And there's a prominent well. It, it sits right at the intersection of two wadis that as the water drains from the, the mountains, it creates a great spot for a well. So Beersheba is a, 
prominent city. Just to the north of Beersheba, you have Hebron. Hebron's still there today. That's where the patriarchs were buried. Abraham was buried at Hebron. So why not go up this route? It's a well-worn route, and it's the place that all your patriarchs used to live. Also, notice this city right here, Kadesh Barnea. And we mentioned last week, we read a verse from Numbers 20 about Miriam, Moses' sister. And it says, they stopped, they, the Israelites stopped at Kadesh and the wilderness of Zin. So right there, they're, they're south at the wilderness of Zin and, and Kadesh Barnea. And then they could very easily just go this direction, right up that ridge route. But that's not what God does. He takes them all the way around the, the, the Dead Sea to the east side and brings them up to a point where they're going to have to cross the Jordan River. And again, we can probably come up with perfectly valid reasons or logical reasons to our mind why God did that, but I think there's a biblical reason. There's a spiritual reason why God took the Israelites in that direction. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is that there's something spiritual going on. It's much more than they got to a river and had to cross the river. So this is our topic, the crossing of the Jordan River. So there's a much deeper message. There's more to the story. And if we say, well, is there something more? The answer, of course, is yes. So there's, there's more to the story. There's a pattern in the Bible, a biblical pattern of action that God uses. And what I want to do is walk through this biblical pattern so that when you see them get to the Jordan, you'll say, aha, I got it. I have new eyes to see this pattern showing up. And the pattern has to do with water. And, of course, we're looking at that river. It doesn't look like much, but it's water, and it represents this idea. So let's go talk about this water motif. It runs throughout the Bible. And I would even argue, if we, if we can see, if we have eyes to see, we'll see that it runs throughout our own lives. This, this metaphor, it's about transformation. At points of transformation in the Bible, there's a water motif. Anytime there's a new creation or a new beginning, there's something that has to do with water. Now, I put on your sheet, number three is we tend to only view the Bible through our Western eyes. So water is just water. We don't think about the symbolism of water. But Easterners think symbolism first. So that's when we talked about them going across the sea and the storm and it rising up. And all of that is because it's all the symbolism that goes along with what water represents. So the first thing I would say water represents is chaos. And it's the chaos of if someone took you out in a boat on the Pacific and threw you in. Well, it would turn into chaos pretty quickly. So we all love the ocean, but you don't love it that much. It's like, I, I want to keep the ocean right over there where it's meant to be. Keep it in the boundaries that God put it. So the first thing is chaos, is water represents the forces of chaos. It's the enemy of God. That's what we talked about with the storm and the sea. Water also represents potential. 
Because in any transformational event, in any chaotic situation, there's potential, and you just have to find the potential. So we can mine potential out of any chaotic situation. And it's really important that we see that it's not only the chaos, but there's also an element of potential to be found there. So it represents some potential for new beginning. It also represents some transformation that's happening and new creation. So I'll give you one example. First of all, there's a, there's a paradox here. Just please recognize there is a paradox. We need water to live. Absolutely true. So water is good. But too much water and we die. So water is bad. And so you have a paradox. You have to live in that tension of the paradox. I need water to live and water brings life, but it's also can destroy. So we like water when we get it and we can consume it, but we don't like the water when it comes in the form of a hurricane. So you've got both things inside of attention. The other thing you, we'd note is that if you think about the future, so since we're limited, we can't see the future or know the future, the future is by default unknown. It's an unformed chaotic mass. So picture the future as being uh, a ball of chaotic mass in front of you because you don't know the future and you can see something like COVID shows up and your future comes rushing in very close to you where it's very difficult to see far into the future. That causes anxiety to rise and we react to that unknown. So there's, there's chaos in the future, but also the future holds all the potential. So as we face the future, we have to walk with God in faith that God will be there in the future, just as he is today. And you step out in faith, even though you can't see what's in front of you. Why? Because you have a shepherd walking right with you. And it's the shepherd who's going to lead you through the chaos. And sometimes the chaos is so much, so close to you, all you can do is take one more step. And so, Partnering with God, we have the ability to transform the future chaos into the potential that exists inside of there. That's if we can grasp that potential. Instead of being overwhelmed by the chaos, we can move through the chaos by walking with God. That's a faith walk, is to walk into the unknown with faith that God will be there. Okay, so that's, it's really important that we hold these ideas beyond just water, because you won't get, you won't get the whole picture unless you can understand the symbolisms that go with water. So I'm going to take you through this water motif. I'm not going to read every scripture passage. We don't have time. So I put them all on your sheet, and it would be really good for you to go back and reflect on this, read through them, and look for the, the, the pattern that's showing up. It's very helpful. The more you reflect on it, the more you review the motif, the more you will see it come out and the more you can see it happening in your, our own lives. This is, I don't know how many times I've gone through this lesson over the years, but every time I do, I, it's like I see something new. I see it with new eyes. So starting with, let's see where we're at, number four on your sheet. I'm just going to walk through, most of you know the story at least enough that you'll be able to follow along to some extent. Go back and check out the details each time, each one of these stories. So, 
the very first place we see this pattern happening, of course, is Genesis 1, because that's creation. There's nothing before that. And this is no doubt a transformational event. It is new creation in and of itself. So we have to go to Genesis 1 to get the pattern first. And I don't suppose you could have anything earlier than Genesis 1. And then once we walk through this pattern, you'll see it as it shows up through the other events in your Bible. So it goes like this, and I'll just talk through it. Genesis 1 starts out with water. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's verse 1. Verse 2, and the earth was formless and empty. Tohu vavohu means it was lack of structure, lack of order. And then it says, and the spirit hovered over the deep. It's the, it's the picture of the deep waters of chaos where there's nothing there. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty. It was chaos. But right above the water was the spirit. And the spirit moved, some of your Bibles say, or the spirit hovered. I've seen some translation, the spirit fluttered, because the word they use is like a bird fluttering. The spirit is right above that chaos. Now, one thing that's really important is the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, also means wind. And so when we go through these stories, Noah and the Exodus, you're going to say, hey, wait a minute, my Bible says wind. But the word underlying that is ruach, the same thing as spirit. And the translation's correct because that's what's technically happening, but you can hold both at the same time. So in the beginning, you have watery chaos. The spirit moves above the water. And then God speaks, let there be, and boom, when God speaks, the water or the chaos is divided. So Genesis 1.6 says, the waters were divided, some water went up to the upper heaven, some water went down beneath the earth. So when God's words hit chaos, what happens to chaos? It divides. This is so true to our own lives. If you are in chaos, let God speak into your life. When we let God, and by the way, you don't have to let God speak into your life. You can resist it. But when God speaks into your life, chaos divides. And that's, oh, it's so important that we picture that, that this is how you walk when you're facing an unknown future. God, the shepherd, will take you through that. So, okay, there's water, the spirit, God speaks, boom, the water is divided. And what happens when chaos is divided is new creation. And that's the whole first two chapters. So God divides the water, he divides the chaotic waters, and out of that you get land, and then plants, and fish, and birds, and animals, and eventually you get human beings, and they're all functioning in perfect order. Everything's functioning perfectly. It's a new creation. This is amazing. But then what happens, right? Because the story's not over. Well, then temptation shows up. They're tempted. Adam and Eve can't resist. And sin enters the picture. Another way of saying chaos enters. So Genesis, by the time we're at the end of Genesis 3, they're being expelled from the perfect order that God created. 
and then the worst of all chaos happens. One brother kills another brother. What could be more chaotic in the world than the murder of your brother? So this is our pattern. It starts with water. You have the Spirit of God, God speaking, the water dividing, new creation. Of course, temptation's going to show up, and everything falls back into sin. So once we get established this pattern, now we can walk through at all of the transformational points. This is obviously the key transformational point. We're creating the world. But at every transformational point along the way, you'll see this pattern show up in some way, shape, or form. Now, it's not perfect, but it's there. The elements are there. So this is what we're going to do next, is I'm going to walk you through Noah, then the Exodus, then Joshua, and get to the point of why is God bringing them to a flooded river? What's the point? All right, so the next one, as Genesis goes on, chaos is increasing. God is not happy with his creation. And so what does he do? We end up with the Noah story. And this is so important to notice. The Noah story is a de-creation event. See, we talk about the rain coming down and creating a flood, but the Bible says, no, the rain came down and the waters from beneath the earth came up. So if you picture the waters were divided at the beginning when God made creation, and those chaotic waters are coming back. They're coming down from above and up from below. So it's a de-creation event is what's happening. So it's really important that we pay attention to the verse about the water above and the water below. So let's go to Noah, the Noah story. We'll walk through this one. Well, what do we start with? Water, of course, that's the flood, the overwhelming chaos that comes upon the world. Starting, that's Genesis 8.1. Then you have, in the same verse, spirit or wind. And th this time it says, uh, there were the floodwaters on the earth, and God sent a wind. But the word underneath it is ruach, the same word for spirit. So God sent wind or spirit right above the waters, just like at creation. God speaks to Noah. The waters are divided. As the waters are divided, what happens? New creation. And you, and you get, it's like a do-over. Okay, humanity, you messed it up. Let's do this again. So you get a new creation. And what happens in Genesis 9 is God goes through a covenant again. He's going to make a covenant with humanity to manage this new creation. Well, that's not the end of the story, though, because shortly after they got out of the ark, Noah planted a vineyard and got drunk. And so what we see is temptation and sin comes right back into the picture as one of his sons now. Now you have a second story about brothers where the son Ham is eventually, essentially exiled. So we see the same picture. It's a, trans, it's a transformational piece in the Bible. Water. The Spirit moves. God speaks. The water is divided. You get a new creation. It's a new beginning, and there's a new covenant put in. Of course, it falls right back into sin because of temptation. So that's the Noah story. Now, if you turn over your sheet to, verse, to side, or the second side, 
number six, we get to the Exodus story. Now, what do you suppose we're going to find in the Exodus story? Are there any water motifs going on in the Exodus story? I mean, even, you know, the Exodus story starts with the chaotic waters of the Nile, the, uh, the Pharaoh throwing the, ba- the newborn babies, the newborn Israelite children, into the river. And what makes that sin particularly awful, because the next day, let's say your child is in the river, the next day you wake up and everything looks normal. You can't tell that anything changed. The river moved on. The, it's, it's a horrible, horrible sin because it looks like life is going on, but it's not. You had a terrible loss. So the Exodus story has water motifs both at the beginning of their time as slaves and then as they're leaving. So we get something like this. Now, what do you notice about this picture? What's happening to the waters? They're divided. So we see the Red Sea. The dividing of the Red Sea is much more spiritually than simply, hey, God parted the waters. There's, it's part of this pattern that's going on as they're leaving one place to become a new creation. So in the Exodus, same thing. We start with water. Exodus 14 is all about the Red Sea. It's that chaotic waters. And what's so cool is read how God divides the waters. He sent an east wind, and the wind is Ruach. So once again, you have the chaotic waters. God's spirit is moving right above the waters. God speaks to Moses, raise up your staff, Moses, and I'll divide the waters. And the water ends up divided. It's so cool how these little details show up in these stories. They divide the water. The Israelites walk through. As they get to the other side, what happens? New creation. They're now separated from their slaveholders, and they're a new creation. That's what everybody's celebrating today. Passover. It's the journey to freedom. It's all of our journey to freedom. Right? We leave the, the pharaoh, the tyrannical pharaoh, whether that's somebody on the outside, like a political leader, or it's your own sin nature that's the, the pharaoh. It doesn't matter. Either way, there's a departure, and it's probably chaotic. But what happens when Israel gets to the other side? What do we find? Well, temptation, of course. I mean, it's not moments before they're grumbling about something, you know, complaining about, ah, we, we wish we were back in Egypt, you know, at least we had food and water and, you know. There's no, there's no thankfulness to God. And then, of course, the worst of all is when Moses goes up to meet with God, and he's on the mountain, and they think he's left for good, and they start being tempted to worship other gods. They're seduced into worshiping another god, and they fall into the sin of the golden calf. And, of course, the cycle begins again as you roll through all of this. So, okay, it's a very powerful pattern. now. Now we get to Joshua 3, because here's our question today. Why does God bring them to a river that's water, right? They have to go across that river. And one thing it's very important to notice is their time in the desert, their time in the, in the wandering in the wilderness started with a water crossing event and ended with a water crossing event. So the whole journey in the wilderness is bracketed by these two transitional pieces, transformational pieces. 
What's the lesson to be learned there? Ah, there's a lesson in this. God could have easily taken him up the ridge route. He didn't. He took him to water. And there's a lesson. So it's more than, it's more than just that was the easiest way to get in. Okay, so let's walk through the Joshua story. Quickly again, we have water. That's the Jordan River. It's at flood stage. It's springtime. And as we mentioned last week, hey, if it's at flood stage, just camp out. Wait six months until it's lower. So you have the, but you have the same imagery showing up. You have the chaotic waters of the Jordan River at its, the height of its chaos. What happens is the priests then take the Ark of the Covenant and they walk out into the river. And what exists right above the Ark of the Covenant is the Spirit of God. So once again, you get the Spirit of God that moves right on top of the waters. God speaks and says, tell them this is exactly what I want them to do, Joshua. They go out over the water, and what happens? The Jordan River stops flowing. The waters are divided. The chaos is divided, and they're able to transform, transform into a brand new creation. You're now in the promised land. You're a new nation. And oh, by the way, as I mentioned, it's Passover. It happens at Passover. So Passover is a time of recreation, renewal. It's spring. Let's celebrate our, our exodus from another year of being enslaved to something. Something enslaves us. Now, what happens next once they get in the promised land? Well, of course, we all know the story. There's temptation. So Achan, he's tempted. Achan sins. And because of Achan's sin, chaos enters back in. Part of the, the important piece of the lesson is this part about the water dividing, right? What was causing the water to be divided? And what we note is that the Bible says that as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan River, and their feet touched the water's edge. The water divided. What caused the water to divide this time? Was it only the Spirit of God, or was it that they, they put their foot in the water? And the lesson here is, it's because they put their foot in the water. They had to step first. So these two crossing events, 40 years bracketed, and then you say, well, what's the lesson out of this? Well, if you put them side by side and you say, what happened on that Exodus one, that the Exodus water crossing? Well, God did all the work. He just said, Moses, raise your staff. I'll bring the wind. I'll divide the water. Once it's divided, you guys walk through. It's called grace. He graciously did all the work. But when you get to that story about Joshua, he says, Tell the priest to put their foot in the water. You take the first step. And that's the lesson. It's an object lesson. The crossing is much more than just get to the other side. It's you step first into the chaos. Now, why would God do this? Well, you've been, we've been together for 40 years now. When you were a brand new Christian, I did all the work. I moved mountains. But now that you've walked with me for 40 years, let's do this together. And you're going to have to step first. And that's the step of faith. You step into the chaos in front of you. 
I'll divide it. But if you don't step, then I'll just let it go. You know, I think back to my own journey because I became a Christian late in life that when I first became a Christian, I was just kind of being carried along for the ride and God was moving mountains and doing all kinds of crazy stuff as I look back on it that I I wasn't even I was just there as a, you know, observing. But after a while, it seems God goes quiet and then you're like, "Well, where's God?" And it's like, "Well, he's waiting for you to act. Take a step of faith." As you step, you're like, but I don't know what's going to happen if I step in that direction. Exactly. You'll never know. Take the step anyways, and I'll meet you in the step. And that's when I divide the chaos. So there's a tremendous lesson in this. That when we've walked long enough with God, he wants you to step first. It becomes a partnership in creation. You go bring order to the chaos. So... It's the Jordan. It's representative of all of that. The Jordan at flood stage is the primordial chaos. God's cons- in a, he's in a continuous process of, of rebirth and renewal. And what's so cool, this is the coolest part, somewhere near this site right here on the Jordan is where J- Joshua crossed. We're not exactly sure where, but it's somewhere down here. And then somewhere about 30 AD, a fellow by the name of Jesus of Nazareth showed up in almost the exact same spot. And he says, I'm going to insist on being baptized. I'm going to enter the waters of chaos. So much as part of that Jesus entering the Jordan River is not just to create the sacrament of baptism. It's that he's entering the water, the chaotic existence of humanity, not just stand on the bank and say, you know, keep doing good work. He enters the chaos with us to be in the chaos with us. So as Jesus goes down to the Jordan, what do you suppose is going to happen? Well, let's go. This is, you, you have water, you have the, the Jordan River, it, that part of that baptism process, that water is so representative of the primordial chaos. So Mark says, Jesus went down to be baptized at the Jordan River. And what happens during his baptism? The heavens are ripped open and the spirit descends right above the water, just like at creation. And it's the, the, the word in Hebrew is a fluttering like a dove. And then our New Testament says, and it descended like a dove. It's the same idea that the spirit is hovering right above the water. And does God speak? Yes, God speaks, and he says, You are my son, Psalm 2, whom I love, Genesis 22, with you I am well pleased, Isaiah 42. That that little verse right there, God is quoting his own scripture when he speaks. So you are my son is from Psalm 2, whom I love, is the story of Abraham. Take your son, the one whom you love is Genesis 22. And then he, God says, with you I am well pleased. Isaiah 42. Go read the next phrase in Isaiah 42 after that. With you I am well pleased, and I will place my spirit on you. That's a messianic uh, passage in Isaiah. So God speaks. Are the waters divided? Well, in some sense, yes, because the waters of chaos are divided for this new creation that comes up out of the water 
as the redeemer of the world. Now, number four is a tough one because in Hebrew, the word for heavens is shemaim. Now, shemaim has the word for water, maim, in it. So you have waters above and they're called the heavens, but it's at the base of it is the waters. So waters are divided when the heavens are torn open. Now, if you don't believe me, or you're, you're saying, yeah, I'm not really sure if this pattern exists. Maybe you're reading too much into the text, right? So you have this story of Jesus enters the chaotic waters of the Jordan. The spirit descends and hovers. God speaks. The waters are divided and there's a new creation. The very next verse, it's verse 12. Jesus is sent out into the wilderness to be tempted. It's exactly the pattern. So Jesus is driven out to be tempted, and here's the part that just blows my mind every time I see it, is the next step is sin. Now, what happened when Jesus was tempted? No sin. Ta-da! The cycle has been broken. It's a new creation. So now we, in Jesus, step out into a new—we become a new creation, right? So, so much of our if we think about our own baptism, our whole baptism represents this exact thing. The, the chaotic waters that you're, you, you are plunged underneath the chaotic waters, and as you're pulled out of those baptismal waters, you're a new creation. You're born again. It's, the, it's all of that symbolism, the transformational symbolism. And what's so cool is this is how life is. At every transitional stage or transformational stage in life, to go through any transformation, there's a moment of chaos, even to learn something new. If you learn something new, it means you, what you had before wasn't exactly right, which means you have to change your, your internal map. And to learn something new means I have to let go of something that wasn't serving me as well as this new thing. In the transition of doing that is a period of feeling chaos. You're not holding on to anything. And that feeling can be terrifying for some people to learn something new. So um, I love to learn. I love it when I find something that I didn't know before, but not everybody does. And it's part of that reason is that little transformational space of chaos in the transformation uh, will frighten people and they don't want to go there. So anyways, it's this is such a great idea. So it goes, let's go back to our first, our first question. The question I was asking is this. Why did God bring them all the way up that eastern side to go into the promised land when he could have just as easily taken them right up that ridge route? Well, the whole point is it's an object lesson. It's the crossing of the, it's the watery chaos that you have to move through. And so it isn't just that they go through it and get to the promised land. It's that now you have the lesson to take with you for the rest of your life. And that wandering in the wilderness represents your own walk with God. As you first walk with God, he does all the work. But after a while, you need to start stepping out in faith or God doesn't necessarily meet you there. Sometimes he does. All right. So the crossing of the Jordan River. And I think that's my last slide. Let me check something. Yep, that was my last slide. 
Main point, it's an object lesson. God takes them over there to give them a lesson about, now you know who I am, you step first. Put your foot in the water. And if you're not willing to put your foot in the water, the watery chaos, then, well, you can't move forward. Can't, you can't transform. And I know after teaching this lesson so many times, I've had people come up to me later and say, you know, I was walking towards something that seemed very chaotic. And I would think about, I would envision myself just like at the Jordan River, just put one foot as God leads me and watch God divide the chaos right in front of you. And then you take the next step and watch God divide the chaos. And pretty soon you're halfway through the river and you don't know how you did it because it seems like there's chaos everywhere. But all along the way, God is meeting your foot as it's stepping down into that chaos. Terrifying to do, but that's often how our walk with God is, is we have to walk into the unknown. Okay, so that is our, the crossing of the Jordan. Let me stop the share. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.